The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, and this is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. This is episode 10 of the podcast series, and um, I welcome you very much. Thanks so much for listening, and here we are ready to launch into the topic. The topic is, well, it's uh, an invasion of Europe. It's vast numbers of refugees dying as they try to cross the Atlantic, uh, the Mediterranean Ocean. And uh, I did touch on this topic a little bit in episode number nine, but I want to start episode number 10 with the following question. I want to let you know that uh, over the last few years, tens of thousands of people have drowned in the Mediterranean. Those numbers are not exaggerations. Have drowned in the Mediterranean as the small boats upon which they were crowded uh, founded and sank. And my question to you, uh, whilst it might seem an unseemly frivolous question about a very serious topic, uh, it nonetheless is actually a very serious question, and that is, uh, of these tens of thousands of people who have drowned in the Mediterranean Ocean, how many of them were people trying to get from Europe to Africa, and how many of them were people trying to get from Africa to Europe? You would have thought that if a specific number of accidents or drownings took place, then half of them would be from one side of the ocean and half of them would be from the other. Just logically and statistically, the answer should be, well, I guess half of them were trying to get from Europe to Africa, and probably half of them were trying to get from Africa to Europe. I mean, just think about it. Uh, if, um, if, if there are going to be, shall we say, 10 uh, accidents on Interstate 5 uh, running up and down the Pacific coast um, during the course of today, wouldn't you think, well, I guess roughly half of them would be uh, impacting southbound vehicles, and half of them would be impact northbound vehicles, right? I mean, that's what you would expect. And if indeed you find that every single accident this week that occurred on Interstate 5 took place in the southbound lanes and nothing in the northbound lanes, you'd want to know why. A healthy curiosity would probably be rewarded with some very useful information. Um, why were there perhaps not enough not the usual number of people traveling northbound, or was there a problem with all these in the same area? Is there a problem on the southbound lanes at this time of the year? Uh, is there a certain point at which the setting sun shines right into the eyes of southbound travel? You know, what is it? Why, whatever the reason is. Well, similarly then, in the Mediterranean, we'd expect that half of those who drowned were trying to go from Africa to Europe, and half were going from Europe to Africa. But of course, you know that's not the case. Uh, everybody was trying to get to Europe from Africa. Why? Well, if you were to ask this question uh, to your favorite left-leaning secular fundamentalist, they'd say, well, that's obvious. It's because the, um, uh, the economy 
is so much better in Europe than it is in the Middle East and North Africa countries. What's more, there are people who are refugees because of uh, turmoil and, and, uh, and, and problems there. So that's why. Okay, fine. I understand. But all you're doing is postponing the question. Obviously, I understand that they're traveling there because they'll be able to live better and they'll be able to uh, make, get money and they'll be able to have certain benefits. I understand. But uh, the question is, why is all that happening in Europe? And why is it that the Middle Eastern and North Africa countries are, for the most part, complete basket cases? Why is that? And uh, please, please don't shriek racism because it is not only a legitimate question to ask, it's a very necessary question to ask if there is going to be any hope whatsoever of repairing the damage and restoring normality. But uh, that, of course, raises the big question of what, my friends, is normality? What is normality? Is normality the state of relative tranquility and prosperity found in Western civilization, found in Europe, found in the United States? And it's craziness what you find in the MENA countries, Middle East and North Africa. That's the crazy stuff. Or would you say no? The norm is what you find in, in Africa and the Middle East and parts of Asia. That's normal. The wild, amazing, inexplicable state of affairs is what you find in Western civilization, what you find in Europe and the United States. Which is it? Well... Let me answer that question by asking you, when, God forbid, an airplane crashes, what happens after that? Well, immediately they convene uh, massive meetings. The uh, National Air Transport Safety Board, I think, carries primary responsibility for investigating an accident. The FAA comes into it. And, uh, and sometimes these are very complex investigations. Um, when the Swiss Air airplane uh, came down off the coast of Nova Scotia, there was no terrorism involved. That was a, a case of a fire, a fire, and it was a, it was an older type aircraft. I think it was a, a Douglas aircraft, but um, uh, it crashed into the ocean just off uh, Peggy's Cove in Nova Scotia, and that uh, that accident. Um, it took $40 million, the investigation, and several years. They retrieved more than 2 million pieces of the airplane. Um, it hit the water at high speed, and it, it fragmented into tiny pieces. And they reassembled it painstakingly uh, till they were able to find out exactly what happened. They saw where the fire had started and what had melted from the heat. It was, uh, it was a classic um, air accident investigation. And uh, and that's the normal thing. What happens when planes come down, that's what happens. But I often say, look, I could save them all that money and all that time. They want to know why the airplane came down. I'll tell you. It's called gravity. For an airplane to plunge downwards into the earth is totally normal. That's exactly what, what should happen. Gravity exerts 
a downward accelerator force of 32 feet per second squared, and therefore anything that is up there, 20 or 30,000 feet in the air, is in an abnormal situation, and gravity will pull it down. Well, okay, fine. So the question is no longer, why did the airplane come down? We know the answer. It's called gravity. The question is, why was it up in the first place? Well, I, I can tell you. Uh, we packed an enormous quantity of chemical energy in the form of liquid fuel into the fuel tanks in the wings of that aircraft. And through a remarkable process, that fuel is burned in a machine called a jet engine, and the air is compressed and ignited, and the fuel sprayed in, and, it's, and this produces tens of thousands of pounds of forward thrust. All right, now we're getting somewhere. But how, how does forward thrust keep something in there? After all, if you fire a bullet absolutely horizontally, it's still going to hit the ground. It's not going to hit the ground right in front of the gun. It'll hit the ground 300 yards down the road. But while it's traveling forwards, it's also falling downwards. And so just that we've managed to come up with a jet engine to produce thrust and keep the airplane moving forward, what stops it coming down? Ah, oh, well, that's another remarkably ingenious idea, and that is a wing. See, the wing has a longer surface area across its upper edge than along its lower edge, and through the Bernoulli effect, the air speeds up across the upper edge of the wing in order to make sure that it meets the air on the lower edge, and that means the air molecules have to be further apart from each other, which is just another way of saying that pressure is lower. And so there's more pressure under the wing and less pressure above the wing, so the pressure forces the wing up, and hey presto, we've now managed to get lift. Wow. So fuel converts into thrust. The thrust, by means of the wings, give us lift, and the airplane stays up in the air, and it's a remarkably abnormal, incredible thing. It's a sequence of processes and events that achieves the improbable, and it achieves it with amazing reliability, of course. It's very exciting. And so it's very important to learn not to confuse the normal with the abnormal. The normal is not a plane in the air. That's abnormal. It's crazy. It's wild. It's amazing. The normal is that things that are high up in the air fall down to the ground. That's totally normal. What is the normal condition for human beings living, in, uh, living together on this planet? The normal condition is, as Thomas Hobbes said in The Leviathan, uh, he said, you know, lives of human beings under normal circumstances are... are are brutal and cruel and painful and short. That's the normal situation. Normal situation is, is chaos. The normal situation is anarchy. The normal situation is uh, filth and death and, and hopelessness and hard work and illness. That's the normal situation on the planet. However, through a remarkable set of circumstances, and an amazing sequence of processes, we ended up with a thing called civilization. And that produced a way of living that is so amazing that wherever it went, <laughs> it created 
broad boulevards of elegance. It created museums and art galleries. It created sewer systems that made sure that sewage did not run down the center of the street every morning. Um, it, it created systems of transport. It created systems of economic development that made it possible for people to live comfortable lives without working seven days a week, 20 hours a day. Civilization, my goodness. And whether it grew in, in London or in Vienna, uh, or whether it got exported to South America, where it converted primitive, brutal, dangerous jungle into the glittering and elegant cities of uh, Montevideo and Buenos Aires and, uh, and Rio de Janeiro and, and many, many other remarkable cities, uh, or whether it was exported to Africa by Victorian-era missionaries in the 19th century who created, again, cities like Nairobi and Cape Town and uh, even parts of Cairo, that was a little bit earlier. But in general, all of these beautiful cities were created by Western civilization that was exported there. And this is true wherever one looks around the world. So it's, it's a really uh, difficult thing to wrap ourselves around, but it's helpful to sort of see how unbelievably unusual it is. It's wild what's going on. And we're left with the question of why there and nowhere else. So now I know why all those people are trying to get from Middle East, North Africa, Asia. Why are they all trying to get to Europe or America or Canada or Australia? Why? Well, because those are the outposts of Western civilization. And they want to live under Western civilization, not under the, the conditions of fairly primitive barbarism from where they came. Okay, fine. But why? did civilization flourish in those countries? Why did civilization flourish there? Why is it that the Aborigines who lived in Australia, why didn't they create beautiful cities and opera houses and bridges? Why didn't they do it? It's a very, very challenging question, but nonetheless, it's one we do need to understand. Going to explore that a little further with you in the next segment, so go nowhere. We'll be right back. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. You don't get to play constitutional absolutist on gay marriage issues and then decide that on the other hand, when it comes to the Second Amendment, that's not constitutional anymore. That's not an issue. So there's autocracy here, a disregard of principle, and I really think it's gross and unseemly for leftists to be, oh, it was law of the land, law of the land. You know, it's the Espionage Act with Hillary? Yeah, we'll see how law of the land the left is in the months ahead. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Radio Show, uh, episode 10 of the podcast, and, of course, my website, youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com. And uh, back to the question of, so why is it that European civilization, Western civilization. Uh, why is it that all the remarkable benefits that the rest of the world yearns for 
are found only in a few countries around the world. Why? And those countries are what we think of as Western Europe and the various countries that Western Europe spawned, Canada, North America, Australia. Why? What's going on there? And if we can understand that, we'd have a better understanding of why it is that uh, the drownings of the Mediterranean are people trying to get into Europe, not the other way around. We'd understand why Saudi Arabia and Bangladesh do not have illegal immigration problems because the whole world wants to go to the West, doesn't have any desire to go anywhere else. We'd understand what's causing this. We'd understand how to keep the airplane airborne. And we might even be able to actually answer the question of, well, if we could only make the Middle East and North Africa as successful as Europe, and by the way, Europe has massive problems, but still, if we could make it as successful, well, maybe people would stop trying to get, they'd stop trying to get into Europe, right? So what's going on? Well, I guess we have to uh, intensify the question by asking why is it that over 97% of all the scientific, medical, and technological advances of about the last thousand years have all occurred in Western civilization? Why is that? Look, um, there are all kinds of specious claims that uh, mining and mathematics and architecture and medicine emerged from Africa, but it's simply not true. These issues bother academia very much, and I'll tell you why. The reason that it bothers universities and that whole world of academia and the intellectual elite, why it bothers them so much, is that deep in their hearts they believe the answer is racial. They think black people aren't smart enough to create civilizations. And so they consider the question to be out of bounds. The question may not be asked. And if it is asked, then their response is to lie and to say, well, it's not true that all the advances came about in Europe. After all, mining and mathematics and medicine and architecture all emerged from Africa. Well, it's a little bit of a problem. And, um, and, and, and here's the key thing. Look, uh, what I'm going to show you is that uh, the, the answer to this mystery of why it is that the West has succeeded while the rest have failed um, has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with race. But the world of academia doesn't know that. And so they are fearful, terrified, petrified of the very question. But uh, we're not. We here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show pursue truth no matter where it leads, whether it makes us comfortable or uncomfortable, uh, whether it fills us with warm enthusiasm or sends shudders of cognitive dissonance down our spines. It doesn't matter. We will pursue truth, right? (laughs) And, uh, And so as far as those Uh, bogus claims about all these wonderful things that came out of Africa, look, um, it would be hard to believe, right, that medicine and mathematics and mining and architecture, all of these things came out of Africa. 
So why was it that when the uh, first British missionaries arrived in Africa in the 1800s, why is it that they found people that did not even have a wheel? They didn't have wagons. They didn't have chariots. They didn't have anything. They literally did not know about the wheel. They were also a people that had no written form of communication. Now, it's pretty clear that a, a scientific system can only develop where there is a written system upon which it can depend. And, uh, and what, they, what they found was, when they came to Africa, was what you find still to this day in many parts of Africa, which is very, very primitive uh, survival, subsistence, peasant farming with, um, with, without machinery, without equipment. Now, Africa is changing very rapidly, uh, largely with the help of the Chinese in this century, uh, who are uh, basically building infrastructure throughout the continent. Uh, they're doing amazing things, and uh, it's a big mistake on the part of the West that, uh, that the West is generally abdicated and uh, abandoned and, and essentially left the vast resources of Africa uh, to China. Uh, but that's how things are for the moment. Bottom line is that uh, these things did not happen in Africa. Oh, people say, well, all right, fine. So maybe they didn't have them in Africa, but they certainly did in China. Aren't you aware that they invented gunpowder in China? Gosh, if, if I hear that one more time, I'll scream. The number of people who at lectures rushed to, well, you don't know. In China, they invented gunpowder. Yeah, they did. You're right. And you know what they did with it? They painted pretty pictures in the sky with fireworks. It never even occurred to them that you can use the power of expanding burning gas to drive a piston down a cylinder and use that to power a fantastic mechanized form of transport. My goodness, they didn't even have a steam engine, let alone an internal combustion engine. Well, you know, they, uh, they did figure out how to make paper and how to print. Yeah, that's right. And the result was uh, that museums now have uh, pictures that the nobility were able to get. But there was no mass production of books. There were no spreading of printing presses. There was no proliferation of ideas. So please, instead of making false and bogus excuses for the cultures that failed to come up with all the uh, apparatus of civilization, why don't we rather study and explore and discover why the countries that did succeed actually did. That's what we really want to know. Oh, wait a second. That's not all. Didn't you know that algebra was a product of Islam? Didn't, I mean, didn't anyone tell you that? I mean, even algebra is an Arabic word. It's not, but anyway, it doesn't matter. And so, uh, so the Arabs came up with algebra. Is that right? And then what happened? All their fascination with mathematics ceased overnight, and um, they never went on from that. As a matter of fact, um, it would have been hard up till the 1800s, it would have been very hard to find anybody in the Arab world who knew the first thing about arithmetic, let alone algebra. Seriously. And so the Arabs invented algebra, and then what? It never occurred to them to keep going and understand calculus, Fermat's theorem, no, nothing, just algebra they came up with, and then they promptly forgot it. And for hundreds of years, they were in 
the Dark Ages. What, why do people believe this nonsense? And if that's not enough for you, there's something more, which is that if truly that algebra was indeed the product of Islam, wouldn't you have thought that algebra should have emerged along with, with literature and, and, and all other kinds of developments that, that would have gone hand in hand with algebra? Shouldn't that all have emerged from the very heart of Islam, should have emerged from the Arabian Peninsula, should have emerged from Mecca and Medina, where Islam was at its strongest. That's where Islam intellectualism should have produced algebra. It should have produced writing. It should have produced art. But none of these things happened there. To the extent that anything did happen under Islam, they happened only where Islam was rubbing up against Western civilization, the Iberian Peninsula, um, parts of North Africa. That's where it happened. And so really all that was really happening was that uh, uh, Islam, having conquered these areas and uh, learned of some of the remarkable things happening there in the uh, development of early mathematics, uh, simply seized upon these things and uh, through effective public relations and promotions uh, claimed them for themselves. But it was, uh, you know, I mean, it was a lot like... Uh, uh, like a savage coming across a, uh, a rusting Cadillac in the jungle and claiming that he'd built it. Well, really? So tell me, did you fix it up and get it going? Did you develop a petroleum industry? Did you make more like it? Did you build a, a roadway system? It, it's pretty obvious that from what didn't happen, we understand clearly the uh, uh, duplicity of the claims underpinning it. And so... I think it's always uh, it's 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 best to be honest in these things, um, and uh, and and try to avoid um, making these bogus claims as an alternative to trying to discover the reality. Rather, find out what really happened. The truth is really much better than uh, these attempts to say, well. We don't want to deal with the question of why civilization and all its wonders only appeared in the white parts of Western Europe. Uh, we, so instead of tackling that question honestly, uh, we'll just say, well, no, it's not true. Uh, they, they came up with all these wonderful things in Africa and Asia and Arabia as well. Well, it's not true. They didn't. So we're left with the real question. Why is it? What was going on there? Why is it that... Um, capital markets only emerged in the West. Now, obviously, today uh, you will find stock markets all around the world. You'll find stock markets in Asia. You've got stock markets in Beijing and Singapore and Hong Kong, and you've got stock markets throughout Africa. But why is it that the concept of a stock market, why is it that the very concept of a corporation, why did these things only emerge in Western civilization? It was London and Amsterdam that developed the concept of a capital market. What's, what is going on? Why did these things happen just the way they did? These are massively problematic questions, and, <clears throat> and they are utterly ignored by Western academia. So um, I will tell you um, that there is one other little thing, not only did Western Europe alone come up with scientific and industrial and technological and medical advances? Um, not only you know, things like uh, um, 
anesthesia, uh, penicillin, I mean, to name just two out of thousands and thousands of things that were, that were developed in the West. Um, not only that, and not only was the whole wonderful world of finance and capital and the whole idea of, of a stock market, not only did that happen only in the West until these things were exported to other nations and other countries, but there's one other remarkable thing that only came about in the West, a truly extraordinary thing. What was it? Well, I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you just as soon as we come back in a few moments, okay? So uh, that's me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in just a moment. Go nowhere. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. Jay Severin. My oldest is on her seventh year of Chinese and, um, and, and just started high school. Now, what do you think by the time she's ready for college, what do you think will serve her better? What is more exceptional, speaking Spanish or speaking Chinese? Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Continuing as we are with the uh, 10th podcast, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My website, RabbiDanielLappin.com. That's enough of all the promotion. And let's dive right back in. I was telling you that uh, there are some remarkable features that characterize the development of Western civilization, features that did not show up anywhere else. Uh, one of them was scientific, technological, engineering, uh, medical discovery and advance. Remarkable. It's not distributed uniformly around the world. You know, you'd have thought, well, you know, uh, a fifth of all the d developments should have been found and, and invented on every continent. Uh, Twenty, you know, five continents, they should... All the inventions should have been discovered logically and statistically on, on average, 20% of them on every continent. Or if you want to go by population, um, continents with large populations should have had more inventions and technologies than others. Didn't work that way. It was like the whole world zero and uh, Western civilization 100%. And the same thing was true with the development of corporations and capital markets and stock exchanges. Again, all of that happened there. The creation of wealth uh, during this period is, uh, is, is very much a monopoly of the West. What is the third feature? The third feature is monogamous marriage. That, again, was something that uh, uh, is found and has been found more reliably in the West than any other culture on the planet. Uh, you can search anywhere you like. Um, you can look at the African tribal cultures, look at uh, Arabic tribal cultures. I mean, look anywhere you like, and you have to come back to the basic conclusion that the institution of monogamous marriage is a creation of the West. Now, here's what's interesting about it, because uh, as I've just told you this, I wonder whether you are at all thinking to yourself, hey, 
Could there be a connection? Is it possible that a, a, a culture or an organization that, uh, that figures out monogamous marriage is also going to be exactly the same culture that figures out Novocaine and, uh, and jet engines? Well, you wouldn't be far wrong. There was a very amazing anthropologist, an academic. Um, he died just before World War II. He was a British anthropologist at Oxford and Cambridge Universities. And um, I think, I, I may be mistaken, I think he ended up in Canada. I think he moved and uh, became a teacher in Canada. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, the point is his name is Joseph Daniel Unwin. And he used to be spoken about, he used to be taught. To tell you the truth, there was no serious anthropology department at any serious university in the Western world that didn't study Joseph Daniel Unwin, U-N-W-I-N. Uh, and all of this stopped in the 60s, and they banished him. And he's now, <laughs> you remember how in the Stalinist era in the Soviet Union they used to uh, excise people from photographs. So if they had official photographs of communist uh, leaders and one of them fell out of favor and, jo um, and, um, and Stalin had him executed, the next thing is they cut him out of all the pictures. He was Stalinized. Well, Joseph Daniel Unwin was Stalinized. Why? For the following statement. Listen to this. And I'm, 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 I'm quoting it in exactly his words. And it's, it's so important. The whole of human history does not contain a single instance of a group becoming civilized unless it has been absolutely monogamous. Nor is there any example of a group retaining its culture after it has adopted less rigorous sexual customs. Did you hear that? So if you were thinking to yourself that maybe there's a connection between uh, organ uh, societies that, uh, that, that subscribe to the rules and restraints of monogamous marriage and the technological developments enjoyed by that society, you're right. There is a link. Apparently, it's a prerequisite. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Unwin said also, he said, uh, all human societies are in one or another of four cultural conditions. And then he gives four technical. Of these societies, the zoistic displays the least amount of mental and social energy, essentially barbaric, uh, the rationalist the most. Investigation shows that the societies exhibiting the least amount of energy are those where prenuptial continence is not imposed. That means where there's uh, unrestrained sexuality, premarital and non-marital. Uh, those are where there is the least intellectual energy in that society and where the opportunities for... Um, um, the cultural, the cultural condition, here's what he says, the cultural condition of a society rises in exact proportion as it imposes prenuptial and postnuptial restraints upon sexual opportunity. This is tremendously important that I'm sure you can readily understand uh, why it is that he was banished from American universities. How dare he suggest that monogamous marriage is a necessary condition for civilization and that the only way that societies develop 
and produce the kind of civilization that the West has developed is in the circumstances of monogamous marriage. Well, when I first read the works of Joseph Daniel Unwin, I was very excited about it because it corresponded precisely to information in ancient Jewish wisdom that intelligence over, I'm going to tell you now something that is going to blow your mind. It's going to be truly astounding to you, and I wouldn't blame you in the least if you said, I just, I'm sorry, I can't believe it. It's too wild, I can't accept it. And that's fine. I'm, again, as you know, my, I get no brownie points for persuading you of anything. I, I'm not trying to uh, convince anybody of anything. I'm simply providing information, and I don't even want you to accept it on face value. As I've told you before, I want you to um, uh, be open-minded to hear it and then test it and just hold it up to the light and see if things I tell you help you understand how the world really works. And, uh, and so what I was going to tell you is that uh, intelligence within groups of people rise or fall in inverse proportion to um, sexual uh, behavior, sexual restraint. In other words, um, if you could imagine uh, a group of people that generation after generation encouraged little kids to engage, you know, youngsters engage in, uh, in, um, in sexual adventure, and then marriage doesn't hold up, and they're, I mean, basically unrestrained sexual expression, then as the generations go by, second, third, fourth generation, you will notice a drop in the IQ. You'll notice a drop in the intelligence. Wow, you hear, hear that? Conversely, um, conversely, societies where there is a strong tradition of sexual restraint, uh, where premarital sex is, is not socially acceptable, and where... Uh, uh, post-nuptial sex is within the marriage. There's, you don't have wife swapping and you don't have uh, adultery. Uh, in those cultures, generation after generation, intelligence rises. And so um, it's, it's not an accident. Well, maybe I'm going to just for the moment, maybe I'm just going to leave that there and uh, let you mull that one over and uh, subject it to analysis and, uh, and test it by uh, by observation, the sort of things that you see around you. And, you know, I was, uh, I was over in the United Kingdom a little while ago, just fairly recently. Uh, I, uh, I had a series, I had 21 speeches in less than three weeks. So there was a, it was a little more than one speech a day. There were some days I was doing two speeches a day. It was a wonderful trip. I loved every minute of it. I was in Northern Ireland and in, uh, and in England. I was not in Scotland. And uh, I spoke for two groups, of, for two types. I spoke for a number of business organizations, and I spoke for a number of churches. And, for instance, I spoke for the famous Hillsong Church in, uh, in London. Um, Hillsong uh, was founded by press Pastor Brian Houston in, uh, in Sydney, Australia, and there are branches all over the world now, but the London branch is one of the largest. Uh, it was probably about 10,000 people. And uh, you will see that speech, if you're interested, uh, on, on YouTube. Just look up Rabbi Daniel Appen at Hillsong Church, and uh, you, will, you will find it there. Anyways, the, the reason I mention this, what's so interesting to me about that trip is 
that um, the most, you know, I had always thought that uh, Christianity in England was dead. I thought at the very best it was somnambulant. It was like the walking dead. And, uh, and I did not anticipate getting very much in the way of large audiences or exciting audiences or interesting audiences or, or, or passionate audiences. You cannot imagine how astounded I was where church after church after church that I, I spoke at, and as I say, I spoke, I'm, I'm going to um, say I must have spoken at about uh, 14 churches and about seven business organizations. But at all these 14 churches, I can tell you that um, the majority of them were being pastored by very dynamic, outstanding leaders from Africa. This was fascinating to me. So what you've got there are uh, Nigerians, Ghanaians, Zimbabweans, black pastors from the continent of Africa who are leading these vibrant, uh, multicolored, multiracial churches uh, in England. I found it fascinating. I had the time of my life, fabulous audiences, really, really good leadership coming from these guys and their wives. And uh, before I left to return at one of the last events I spoke at, I, I said that I had just realized something rather amazing, which is that in the 19th century, England brought civilization to the African continent. It did. It did it by sending ministers of the gospel. It sent missionaries. And... Uh, you know, you might you might remember that marvelous um, uh, Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn movie, African Queen. Um, and again, it, is it worth seeing? Well, it depends if you have spare time. But if you're going to watch a movie anywhere and you're going to just watch some silly movie, get hold of African Queen. One of the things that's nice about it is that you get a little bit of insight into this period where England was sending Christian ministries, missionaries to Africa, and they brought medicine and they brought uh, civilization, they brought education, and, um, and, and they brought Christianity to such an extent that to this day, the pockets in Nigeria that function really well, where there's economic development, uh, where, where there's education, these are the pockets of Protestant Christianity in Nigeria. Northern Nigeria is Islamic, and um, you can thank them for the next Internet uh, uh, scam you get on your email. Uh, and that's the least of the horrors that infect northern Nigeria. So it is in, in Ghana and Zimbabwe and all kinds of other countries in Africa. The legacy left by the English uh, Christian min missionaries of the, 80, of the 1800s are where you find the, the highest rate of vitality and education and health and civilization in Africa. It's lingered to the present day. Anyway, what's so fascinating to me is that um, it's, all, it's, it's absolutely accurate to say that England brought Christianity to Africa in the, 1800, in the 19th century. It is Africa that is returning the favor and bringing Christianity back to England in the 21st century. It really is. It's quite remarkable to see. But Christian vitality is not found in the Anglican Church, with, with one or two small exceptions. But otherwise, 
that is uh, where you find Christian vitality in England is in the evangelical churches, overwhelmingly pastored by leaders from Africa. All righty, we take a uh, quick pause, and um, I, your radio rabbi, will be back in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. They're trying to figure out if she goes to jail. I'm going to read that. I read about that. Because where did they was over? Holy him slash her. Well, first of all, Kate's not going to jail. Uh, Bruce is not going to jail. Yeah, no, Bruce, they're not going to put Bruce Kate in jail. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Oh, my God. No way. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Hello, my loyal listeners and faithful friends. Thank you for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. This is episode 10, as you know, and we move along um, into this fourth segment of the show, uh, talking about why it is that uh, all the drownings in the Mediterranean over the last couple of years have involved migrants trying to get from Africa or the Middle East to Europe. But nobody has drowned in in a desperate struggle to get from Europe to Africa or the Middle East. No, not at all. And so why are they trying to get there? Well, they're trying to get there because uh, conditions are uh, are more conducive um, to making a living and having a free life and having a happy and successful life. Um, So that's pretty obvious. That's why they're all trying to get to Europe. But wait, like I said, that only postpones the question. The real question is why is it that those circumstances are found uh, in Europe, but they're not found in the Middle East and North Africa? Why is that? Why are those circumstances found in Canada, in Australia, the United States, but they're not found in Nigeria or uh, Bangladesh or, or many of the other hundreds and hundreds of other countries that are part of the United Nations? So there is obviously something unique and special about Western civilization, about what we find in Europe. But um, uh, it's, it's, it's a question that, I've, as I've explained, which seldom gets asked in academic circles because they are terrified that the answer is actually that black people are inadip- incapable of doing these things. The, the good news, of course, is that it has absolutely nothing to do with skin color but it does have everything to do with actual culture. Now, what does culture really mean, the word? Well, the word itself is derived from the English word cult. And uh, cult originally meant a religion. Later on in, in the 20th century, late 20th century, it began to be used for crazies like Jim Jones and the, uh, and the Jonestown um, uh, massacre in Guyana and, um, and, and you know, many, many other cults, uh, including many who, uh, who consider uh, various organizations and various religions to, to be cultish. The word is used 
in a derogatory sense these days. Uh, oh, you know, that's, it's just a cult. But really, what the word used to mean was a religion. And uh, you, you will find references, for instance, to the early days of the cult of Christianity. No, it, wasn't, it wasn't this uh, group of crazies you know, following a maniacal leader into hopelessness and destruction. No. Uh, today, when we say the word cult, we're usually thinking of an organization that does everything it's ca it can to isolate its members and devotees from their friends and from their families and from their jobs and from their societies and uh, lock them into some kind of uh, unhealthy relationship with other members of the group and with the leader of the group, usually a charismatic, very demanding leader. And, uh, you know, these things surface every now and then, and, and we know the usage of the word. But originally in English, the word cult was really just a word for religion. And so culture uh, began to be understood, and again, today it's become something entirely different. But when we used to use the word culture in English, it meant uh, the, the way that a group of people's uh, worldview is shaped by their relationship with their God. That was that it. Cult, culture, religion, and the sort of society that that religion produces. That's how it used to work. That's what it used to mean. And, uh, and, and, to, and to this day, we understand the, the religious dimensions of cultures. Okay? Well, the culture of Western civilization is Christianity. That's where it comes from. And um, it's, it's by no means an accident that uh, these countries that emerged and became part of what we think of as Western civilization, uh, you know, from, from Italy and France and Spain and Germany and the Scandinavian countries and Holland, and then, of course, uh, the, the countries and colonies that they spawned. But the, the reason, and it's, it's very important that we are able to relate to this idea that um, the Bible played a seminal role in the founding and in the establishing and in the nurturing of all of these societies. You know, when uh, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press in 1450, um, he did not make the very first thing he printed, the Vienna Telephone Directory. No, not at all. It was the Bible, the Gutenberg Bible. And that's only a part of it. Uh, if you look at the art of Europe, you look at the inspiration of Europe, you look at the extent to which uh, so much energy and time and resources went into building churches and cathedrals, and, and you take a look at the, at the role that, uh, that Rome played in the emergence of Western civilization, um, it's, it's quite unmistakable. And then you take a look at the, uh, the legal structures that emerged and the customs and the patterns. So, for instance, although uh, England changed the law regarding homosexuality, I believe it was in the 1950s, and of course in America much later than that, but where did the laws prohibiting homosexuality come from? I mean, it's, it would seem to be fairly logical, wouldn't it? After all, as people will say today, what difference is it to the state what people do in the privacy of their own rooms? I mean, why is this a governmental issue? Well, because American law based on British law, based on Roman law. And what's Roman law based on? You got it, biblical law. And uh, the Bible is uh, 
unequivocal about the, the question of homosexuality. So all that happened was that as uh, Rome adopted biblical law into civil Roman law, they took that along as well. And so did the British, and, and so it was until the 1950s, all the way through to the 1970s. It began to change. But uh, that's what used to happen. Now, there's another uh, very important difference. Uh, one of the books that uh, attempts to explain why it is that life in Europe is so much better than life in other countries around the world, why it is that life in Judeo-Christian countries or what we call Western civilization, why is it that life is so much better there? Why is it that people are flocking? Yes, from the Middle East and from North Africa and from almost absolutely everywhere you can think of, people are flocking to try and find and build new homes in countries that are part of Western civilization. Um, today, Vancouver in British Columbia has been absolutely transformed by the arrival of Chinese from Hong Kong who, uh, and, and also from the Chinese mainland uh, seeking to uh, build a possible refuge if they ever need to flee from China. They have somewhere to go. And, uh, and there are thousands of homes and condo units in Vancouver that stand empty most of the year owned by Chinese nationals who want to have a place in Western civilization. And, um, and of course, there are many others who, who actually move and, and live there, all to the benefit, as it turns out, of Vancouver. But uh, that, that is it. People struggle to get into Australia. They struggle to get into uh, uh, New Zealand. They struggle to get into Canada and obviously the United States, needless to say, France, Germany, Italy. Uh, United Kingdom, all of these places people are struggling to come to. Nobody's struggling to get into Libya, not a soul. Nobody's struggling to get into Somalia. Nobody's struggling to get into the Sudan. Nobody's struggling to get into Pakistan or Bangladesh. No, they're not trying to do that at all. So what is it? Well, yes, okay, fine. He said that uh, things are better there and uh, in, in many ways. Uh, one of the, the books that, that uh, sets out to try and talk about this is um, written by a very smart Peruvian economist called Hernando de Soto. And uh, in his book, he uh, speaks about property rights. That's the, the central theme. And he points out that um, in Egypt, for instance, there are shacks put up all over the place, you know, with uh, cheap uh, concrete blocks and uh, tin roofs. And, uh, he's, you know, the reason is because nobody can put up a more permanent place because nobody knows exactly who owns the property. And so it is. He says one of the main distinctions between the West and the rest is that in Western civilization, uh, people um, are able to identify properties. You know, in America, you have title companies, and, uh, and you can establish title to a piece of land. You, you acquire it from the person who previously held title. It gets transferred to you. And the record is maintained. And so it is in England and in Sweden and in Norway and in Italy. For the most part, you know who owns any piece of property. You can find out. But if you travel to Zimbabwe or Nigeria or Zambia or Tanzania, um, forget about it. <laughs> you have absolutely no idea. who. What, nobody knows who the land belongs to. And very often the government seizes it. But there's very little incentive to uh, to invest capital on something you can't establish the ownership of. So that's one thing. 
And he also points out that uh, if you own land, you can get a mortgage and you can acquire capital that fashion. But uh, in societies, okay, fine. All of this, again, just postpones the question, doesn't it? Which is, all right, fine. I think you've made a very important observation, Professor De Soto, and that is that uh, in the West there are uh, – the countries tend to have property rights, and, uh, and, and to some extent, to a greater extent or a lesser extent, uh, you can establish the ownership of property. You can buy it, and then it becomes your property, and that can be protected, um, whereas in uh, non-Western countries, that's not the case. Okay, fine. I understand. Good observation. But it doesn't answer the question of why. And for that, your rabbi has to step into the breach. And uh, the reason is because, once again, as, uh, as Roman civilization uh, formed and rose and, as, uh, as Edward Gibbon says, eventually fell, and uh, England rose and eventually fell, but as these societies rose, uh, they built their legal systems on the Bible. And what do we know about the Bible? Well, we know that in the Bible, the ownership of land is absolutely fundamental. It's, it's laid out, and this has to have been one of the most shocking, new, startling innovations when the Bible reached humanity about 3,300 years ago, because up till that point, it was kind of rare for people to do that. You know, we know that as, as recently as the pilgrims' um, arrival um, in, uh, in North America, we know that um, after a, uh, a, a rough and painful winter and an experiment with communism, uh, they eventually decided that they wanted to buy the land, and they wanted to really establish ownership of the land because where they came from in England, that's what used to happen. And they went to the local Indians, and the Indians thought this was hilarious because, as everybody knows, human beings can't own land, if anything. If anything, land owns humans. And they, um, they said, no, we don't want to buy. And they, they gave the, uh, the, the beads or the guns or whatever they gave them for, uh, in, in, in exchange for the land. They, they literally bought the land. And uh, the Indians were so nonplussed by this, they went back to their families and laughing in hilarity that the, uh, the crazy white people think you can buy land. And look what they gave us for the land. And tomorrow we're going to go back. We'll sell them the sun and the moon and the stars. We're going to have a wonderful time. Well, it didn't work out quite that way. But, uh, but I do understand uh, just – I understand entirely just how baffled they were at this notion of buying land because they had never done that, right? No Indians in North America ever established ownership of land. They were nomadic. They wandered around. There was no land ownership in all of Africa. There wasn't such a thing until the missionaries arrived. There was absolutely nothing. The Dutch East India Company, of course, came to South Africa and established Western principles there. But otherwise, for the entirety of Africa, there was no such thing as owning land. And, and so it is in most of Asia and Arabia. You, you don't. You know, it's very, very unusual, very, very hard to, to do. Because this idea is so alien, why is it so alien? Well, that I have to tell you coming back. Why it is that um, – why it is that – until the arrival of the Bible, people didn't know about ownership of land. This whole concept was so strange. It has a very interesting origin uh, there as well. What is it that makes ownership of land so contrary to such an extent that uh, communism as a uh, philosophy decries the ownership of land? They hate the idea of private people owning land. 
And from their perspective, in the context of their worldview, they are absolutely correct. In a moment, I'll tell you why. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Chris Salcedo. Just because I, I believe you should come into my country legally doesn't make me a racist. Just because I believe that we are a country of laws that should stand on those laws doesn't make me a racist. It doesn't make me a hateful person. And I will say it to anyone in the political class, whether they be Democrat or Republican. I will have words with anyone who says differently. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. We're back. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, moving along with uh, what is episode 10. Um, and uh, you'll notice I'm now uh, reminding you which episode number it is. And uh, I'm doing that because one of you, a listener, actually wrote to me and said, I think it would be useful if when listening we could know which number we're listening to. And that way, if, uh, if we ever, ever want to review anything earlier, we know, we know roughly whereabout we are. And I thought that was a good idea. And likewise, if anyone else has uh, practical ideas that you think could improve the podcast, um, I'd like you to write to me as well. So here's a reminder how to do that. All you need to do is go to my website, www.rabbidaniellappin.com. And, uh, and the good thing is that uh, there is a Contact Us tab there, which you can click on gets you to a page where you shoot me an email, and I'll get it. And uh, you can be quite sure that I will read your suggestion, and if it, uh, if, if it is something that fits, I will implement it. So thank you very much indeed for, for all of the ideas and suggestions and comments that do come. Also, in terms of anything you'd like to ask me or you'd like to have me uh, talk about on the show, go ahead, and uh, that will be just the right place to shoot me an email. It's also the, the, the right place... Uh, my website, that is, in, is to have a look at the other resources in which I go into greater depth than I can do on the podcast on many of the topics. And, um, and uh, in general, there is more information on the website that I think will be helpful to you. So uh, RabbiDanielLappin.com is where it is. And uh, back to why it is that uh, there, there is so much antipathy to owning property. Why is it that the philosophy of communism and socialism is opposed to individuals owning property? Well, the answer is, is pretty straightforward, and that is that uh, these views of reality, whether you're going to label it progressivism or liberalism or socialism or communism, but um, whatever it is, it's, it's a secular fundamentalist view of reality which posits that uh, you and I are nothing but sophisticated animals, and if we are nothing but sophisticated animals, well, no animal owns property, uh, animals do not understand or, or, or have any need for property rights. Now, you do have a territorial instinct, right, with, uh, with some animals. So, for instance, uh, uh, you can um, uh, notice that when a lion uh, marks out territory in Africa, and it's usually going to be something like about 10 square miles, and that's pretty much where the lion hangs out, uh, he has no problem with elephant coming in there. He has no problem with deer coming in there. In fact, he wants them to. He'll eat them. Uh, his only problem is w with other lions coming in there. 
country. And, uh, and that, that territorial instinct is entirely different from ownership of property. Uh, in other words, it's, it's, it's perfectly obvious that no liar and no lion and no beaver and, and no leopard um, you know, ever get together and exchange properties and uh, make deal. No, of course not, because they don't recognize ownership over the land, and no primitive peoples ever did as well. By that I mean nations that never had exposure to a Judeo-Christian worldview, never had exposure to a Bible, not surprisingly, they, uh, they also never ever got this notion of ownership of land. And, uh, and as a result, communism, which, which is the formalized philosophy of secularism, uh, is very emphatic about that, that you know, ordinary people have no right to own land. The state owns everything, obviously, and, and that's the way it should be, but not, uh, not individually. And that obviously is, uh, uh, is, is very fundamental and, and very, very basic. So, not surprisingly, it's only countries, and again, this happens to become the, the Western civilizations, it's only the Western countries with access to the Bible that read very early on how Abraham comes to want to buy land uh, to, to set up a memorial and a burial for his wife and for his family, and the folks there say, oh, just go ahead and use that. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an alien thing to them. Basically, they're saying exactly what the Indians in North America said to the pilgrims. You know, we don't quite know what you're talking about. Why don't you just go ahead and do whatever you want to do on the land, same as we do. And uh, the, um, the locals told Abraham the same thing. But Abraham doggedly persisted until he finally got through to them that he actually wants title to the land. And it took a long time for them to fully understand and grasp what he was talking about, but eventually, finally, he owned the land. And sure enough, that is the uh, town of Hebron. To, to this day, you can go to Israel and see uh, the burial of, of Abraham and, and Isaac um, and Jacob. So, uh, and it said also Adam and Eve, by the way. So, yes, these things are, uh, are, are very real. And so Hernando de Soto is exactly right. Ownership of land, title to land, is definitely one of the keys to a society becoming an affluent and successful and civilized society for sure. But how do countries get to this idea where ownership of land is embedded in their uh, national DNA? Well, that came from their original connection with the Bible, obviously. And, um, and so the... The, the countries that attract migrants from Italy and from North Africa, excuse me, the, the countries that attract uh, migrants from North Africa and from the Middle East, places like Italy and Germany and France and England, uh, what, why are they where they are? Well, they're countries that were founded on the Bible and uh, their entire culture is rooted in the Bible. You may know that there is a special throne in Westminster Abbey in England in London, and all you know, all English greats are honoured by being buried in in Westminster Abbey, and also it's the place where their kings are crowned. It's the place where every coronation takes place, and there is a very special throne there, a very ordinary, plain-looking wooden throne, uh, no decorations, not gilded in gold or anything at all. But uh, but beneath that beneath that uh, throne sits a rough-hewn stone. About you know about two and a half foot wide, something like that, uh, a very noticeable stone. And uh, what is that stone? Well, 
I cannot tell you for 100% certainty, but I can tell you with 100% certainty what the British say about the stone. What they believe that stone is, is the stone that lay at Jacob's head when he left, the night he left home, and uh, set out to find his fortune on his way to travel to his uh, uncle Laban. Um, the, the Bible recounts how he lay his head upon a stone that night, and in the next morning he anointed the stone. And the British uh, believe that uh, they brought that stone from the Middle East. They brought that back to London, and, uh, and how did they find it? Well, um, in the Middle East, the places in which certain things happened have been recorded and kept. The Middle East has been populated continuously since biblical times, and so nobody disputes where the uh, battle between David and Goliath took place. If you visit Israel, ask them to take you there. You'll see it, and it's, it's, it's quite amazing. Um, how about the, the Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses? You'd have thought an event like that should really be um, marked, and, and, and sure it is. When the uh, tourism agency takes you into the desert of Sinai and takes you to Mount Sinai, um, look, I don't want to shatter any more illusions than absolutely necessary, but it's almost certain that that is not the real Mount Sinai. Where is the real Mount Sinai? Uh, more than likely on the Arabian Peninsula, inaccessible to Jews and, uh, and difficult to get to in general. Uh, the, the Saudis who, who own that part of the world, they have the rights to that property. Maybe not too many individuals in Saudi Arabia, but at least the country uh, owns that part of the world. And they're not too big on bringing people there. But uh, they claim that uh, the real Mount uh, Sinai is there. And I'm very much inclined to agree with them. When one looks at a map and, uh, and studies the entire journey of the Israelites from the land of Egypt and, and their arrival at Mount Sinai, uh, 40 days off, 49 days, 50 days after leaving Egypt. Uh, you take a look at that whole thing, it's more than likely that, that, is, that they are absolutely correct. And, uh, and the, the point I'm making is that Middle Eastern uh, places, you know, kind of pretty much known where Elijah and the prophets on Mount Carmel, well, that's pretty well known, and uh, where the temple stood in Jerusalem, nobody's arguing about that. And so it is that it's more than likely that the stone um, uh, upon which Jacob placed his head probably did become an altar and a memorial and a monument uh, that was uh, respected and protected, and, um, and you know, that's, that's what it was until... Uh, British explorers came along, and I think it would have been probably in the 19th century, maybe a bit earlier, and they came and took it and brought it back to England and put it in Westminster Abbey. So I, I know for sure that they claim it was the, the uh, stone on which Jacob placed his head. Um, is it really? I don't know, but if it really is, I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised. Um, and I, I tell you all of that um, only in order to be able to emphasize just how biblically based Western civilization is. And, uh, you know, just recently, the head of the Hungarian government um, complaining bitterly about 
the way his country has been inundated with migrants trying to get from the Middle East through his country to Europe, many of them staying in his country. He actually made the mistake of saying what he thought and has been reviled by the world's press since then. But uh, what he spoke about was the fact that he said Hungary and Europe as a whole is losing its Christian character. And you know that sort of gets the hackles to stand up on many people's necks, and people get very irritable about that. But I'm, I'm an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and I'm extremely comfortable with the idea that, uh, that Europe has a Christian biblical origin. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm watching with some amusement the futile struggle to write a constitution for the European Union. And when the European Union finally does end, which I'm sure you will live to see, and I hope I will as well, it's not, uh, not going to be long, uh, just remember I told you about it first, will you? Give me credit for that. Uh, because no, the European Union is not long for this world. But uh, one of the amusing things is their attempts to write a constitution. Now, the constitution of the United States that has worked so well for the last few hundred years is a model of brevity and, uh, and, and conciseness and specificity. Uh, the European Union been uh, struggling to write their constitution now for several years. It's over a thousand pages and they're nowhere near saying they're done. That's true. <laughs> it's true. They're busy right away. Here's the funny thing. Not a single reference to God or the Creator, not a single reference to the Bible, not a single reference to the Christian nature of the, uh, the countries that make up the European Union. That's one of the ways I know that the Union is not long for this world, because they're just severing their relationship with their past and with their history. And, uh, and all I can tell you is that if uh, you don't have much of a connection to your past, you probably don't have much of a future. And this is true for us as well. It's one of the reasons that I always encourage folks, uh, those of you who try and follow my teachings in terms of raising your families, uh, I speak all the time about how important it is to tell your children about your early days. Now, <clears throat> not everything, uh, not everything at all. You know, let's imagine you did some stupid things in your youth. I can't imagine you really did. I, I'm sure you wouldn't have been as stupid as me. But, um, but if, perchance, you might have done a few silly things while you, while you were young, you, sh you, d you should not tell those over to your children. Uh, if they specifically ask you about certain things, uh, your answer has to be either, if you can possibly manage to say those are not appropriate questions for a child to ask a parent, I think you should say that. Uh, and if you cannot get away with that and uh, you, you, you maneuvered into a corner, you certainly can't lie about it, but, but um, I, I would put off. You know, and again, if you have to tell your children, yeah, you know, look, um, uh, I, did, uh, I did use drugs when I was a kid. Um, it was a different time then. Uh, we didn't know how bad they were. You know, you have to, and you just have to say, look, I, I've been dreading the day you were going to ask me. I, uh, it's not something I'm proud of. I, I really didn't want to tell you. Uh, or they, you know, I can't imagine, I mean, would a child ever say, uh, uh, you know, did, did you and mommy live together before you were married or something like that, you know. I mean, it's, it's not, I think you can say that that's a question children shouldn't ask parents. And as much as possible, these are not things that, that you do want to uh, talk about and, and tell your children. You know, unless, as I say, you have no option, and then you should, you should speak about it in terms of, of regret and contrition. 
uh, and and say, you know, why why we have taught you differently from what we did because we learned from experience. We really wouldn't want you to have to go through some of the pain that that we went through as a result of this. Not not ideal. So uh, what uh, I've just digressed slightly on things you shouldn't tell your children, but what should you tell your children? Well, uh, for that. I'll ask you to hold on just a moment, and as soon as we come back, I'm going to tell you exactly what it is I think you ought to stress in telling your children. Don't go away. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. What is the difference between what you're eating now versus what you ate 40 years ago? It's more mass-produced crap that they put in the food so it'll stay on the shelf longer so Unilever and these other companies can make even more money. We have to go back to eating fruits and vegetables in this stuff. And I don't need the federal government under the guise of protecting public health screwing with us on this stuff. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. And uh, we are in episode 10 of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, um, talking about uh, retaining a connection with your history and your background. Uh, I said that both individuals and nations that lose sight of their past probably don't have much of a future ahead of them. And uh, it's a matter of enormous concern to me personally uh, how little real American history is being taught to children in American public schools these days. Uh, When you either ignore or remain ignorant of your history or distort your history, you probably don't have a whole lot of a future. And uh, and that's what the European Union is doing. They are doing their best to uh, expurgate and obliterate their Christian origins and to try and uh, uh, recreate a completely bogus uh, reality of their, for themselves, namely a sort of secular, rootless reality. Uh, and, and the result is that uh, I don't know how much of a future they have. I don't think very long. I do know that they're futile struggle to write a constitution uh, seems to have no success in sight whatsoever. And so, not surprisingly, uh, there they are, and, uh, and, uh, and, and not a whole lot happening. But the bottom line is that, um, that, West, that, civil, that, that uh, Europe was originally based on the Bible. Europe was set up, and Europe as we know it, what we think of as Western civilization, um, the Bible was central. It was absolutely central to everything they thought and everything they did. And that means that uh, that means that we have to come back to try and explore if this affiliation with the Bible, this early connection with the Bible, could possibly have anything to do with the economic and civic success of Western civilization. Well, first of all, let's take a look at the whole question of um, whether the fact that the Bible lay so deep in the foundation of Western civilization, um, could that have had something to do with the incredible success that Western civilization has had with science and technology? Now, obviously, since World War II, 
communication has dramatically increased and, uh, and, and since the transition into the 21st century, the, the rate and spread of knowledge is, is even more rapid and more complete. And so today, uh, these things are found anywhere and everywhere. But uh, for a long time, a thousand years or so, the overwhelming majority, over 97% of all the scientific and technological and medical advances, uh, everything came from, from Europe and in many cases from scientists like Isaac Newton, for instance, and many, many, many others um, who were deeply devout Bible-believing Christians. And my answer is that uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but uh, before that, I did say before that I did say earlier that I would tell you the sort of things I think you you, you should be telling your children. And and in order to uh, preserve and give them a better shot at a future, uh, knowing their past is very important. One of the great tragedies in America today is that uh, there is an entire class of people in American society who do not know who their fathers are, which is a frightful problem. Because if you don't know who your father is, then you really don't have a history. Uh, particularly since, again, in the, West, in the West, we have created and perpetuated a system where people take their father's last name. The family name comes from the father. Now, there are a lot of very good reasons for that, and uh, one of them is that once again, it's a biblical way of doing things, so the West picked up on that. Um, secondly, also, um, in, uh, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for male is the same as the Hebrew word for memory, zachar. And uh, what this means, like all Hebrew words that have the, uh, the same word with several meanings, those several meanings are always related. And so in what way is memory related to male or masculinity? Well. Um, precisely in this, that the memory of the family goes down through the male line. How's the memory of the family retained? Uh, through the last name, through the family name. That, that is the concept. It's also, uh, you'll, you'll find in Germany, again, another biblically-based Judeo-Christian country that took a tragic excursion into Nazism, but uh, the founding of the country, no question about it. I mean, uh, German, the great German composers, uh, you know, there were people like uh, Beethoven and and Johann Sebastian Bach, these people wrote on their music for the glory of God. I mean, there was no question about it that these people were all Christian. And, uh, and, and so it's, it's just really important that we can sort of wrap ourselves around this idea and, uh, and, and make sure that we, we tell our children uh, about this. Tell your children about your early days, not, not the bad stuff, as I said earlier. Try and leave that out, but tell them about good stuff you did. Tell them about how you were raised. Talk about their grandparents. Now, you know, the, I hope you have a wonderful relationship with your parents, dead or alive. I hope you, you think back on them with nothing but fondness and love, but not everybody does. Nonetheless, you would be doing your family a great service. If you can put aside your uh, childhood beef, with your parents, you'd be doing yourself and your children and your wife and, and husband a big favor if you could just forget about all the things and all the, all the whinings you, you have about your parents, all the things that, that they did that, that caused you so much grief. Just put that away and, uh, 
and try and tell your children about some of the great things they did, some of the challenges they overcame, some of the, the difficulties they endured. And, uh, and the, you know, the odds are that, uh, that your parents probably did go through much tougher times than you did in all probability. And uh, it's valuable for your children to hear about it. It's valuable for your children to hear you talking about these things. And um, it's, it's valuable for your children to hear you telling them also about uh, things you've done, you know, accomplishments in, in your early life, challenges you overcame. There's great value in that because once you give your children a fixed position with respect to the past, you're also giving them a fixed foundation upon which to build the future. And um, it's the most wonderful thing uh, to sometimes hear children say, well, uh, you know, my, my grandfather did this, and, uh, and I just want to remain uh, true to his memory. Well, that comes up all the time because uh, your children are going to be subjected to temptations and diversions and challenges in life in all probability beyond most of what you had to face. Times are changing. Times have changed. The change is rapid. The change is alarming in many cases. And... Uh, you can't imagine how helpful it would be for your children to say, even if they only say it to themselves, you know, uh, my parents stood firm on this issue and my grandparents stood firm on this issue and I am as, you know, as well. Or, um, you know, if, um, uh, you know, my parents, uh, my grandparents suffered in the, de in, the, in the depression too horribly for words, um, they... They never, ever went on the dole. They never, ever took money from anybody else. They certainly never stole. And today, poverty is being used as, as an excuse for crime. So, um, and so I made sure that my, my children know that uh, their grandparents' integrity and their great-grandparents' integrity and honor was never compromised no matter how stressful the economic circumstance. Now, I believe that's going to give my children added strength to combat some of the challenges that are almost certainly going to face them as they begin to uh, their journey through life. Okay, so, uh, <clears throat> so that, uh, is, I think, is just a helpful thing I was talking about in the context of Europe that's a, um, that is expurgating its past, and that's one of the reasons I don't think it has much of a future. I also worry about uh, the extent to which America is not teaching the greatness in American history. All we're doing is obsessing about slavery. And uh, yes, um, of course, everyone has to issue the obligatory caveat. Yes, it was a terrible, terrible thing. Fine. But there were also some incredible things. For instance, our American ancestors got rid of slavery, whereas it continued in other places in the world. Well, as a matter of fact, under some parts of Islam, it actually continues to the present, well into the 21st century. And so uh, instead of obsessing about, uh, oh, America's founders were slave owners, yeah, pretty much everybody was in those days. And uh, if there's anything that is uh, the, the height of immorality, it is to, to uh, indict people for things that were not illegal at the time they did them. And I mean, I think everyone understands how thoroughly evil that is. You know, imagine, imagine being uh, marched off to jail in front of your family now for doing something that was perfectly legal when you did it, but it's retroactively being deemed to be uh, a crime. You haven't done it, 
in the last 50 years. You did it when you were 10 years old, or when, and now you're uh, 60, and you did something back. Yeah, you, yeah, it wasn't illegal then. doesn't matter. Off to jail you go. Well, that's kind of what people are doing with the, uh, with the founders of America, finding ways to indict them for things that uh, were simply not a problem back then. They, they just weren't. Anyways, the, uh, the point is that uh, we go back to Europe and try and understand why it is that Europe created vibrant economies, freedom, uh, property rights. Yes, and of course, there were wars and there were terrible times in Europe. But uh, if, if you're not aware of the brutal wars conducted by Chaka the Zulu in southern Africa, then you're just not... Uh, intellectually equipped for this argument. I mean, the, the notion that, the, uh, that Europe was more barbaric than, than parts of the Third World, simply not true. Now, there were terrible things that happened in World War II. There were terrible things that happened in the Hundred Years' War. There were terrible things that happened in World War I. There were terrible things that happened in many periods of European history. Um, but uh, the fact is that uh, equally horrible or more horrible things happened uh, among the Native Americans of North America, among the Africans of the continent of Africa, and those folks never came up with any compensating qualities such as Novocaine for toothache or civilization in general. <laughs> they didn't, and, and that's really what we've got to ask ourselves. So what is the reason that so much scientific and medical and technological advance took place in Africa and nowhere else? Well, the answer is actually the Bible. The answer is that uh, the outlook, the worldview of these people was shaped by uh, the Judeo-Christian faiths and by the Bible uh, as we know it. And that is what it will really, excuse me, what does the Bible know about science? What does the Bible have to do with, uh, with technology and mathematics and medicine? How can you possibly state that it is the Bible that shaped Europe's monopoly on technological discovery and scientific invention? <clears throat> well, absolutely, yes, uh, you can. And uh, how? Tell you in just a moment. Uh, don't forget to write to me at my website, youneedarabbi.com, www.youneedarabbi.com. Click on the Contact Us tab. Subscribe to Thought Tools so you hear from me every week and uh, I'll be able to let you know when I'm in your uh, neighborhood, when I'm speaking in your town or your city. That way we'll get a chance to meet, which I very much look forward to. Um, already now, at several of my appearances, people have come up to me and said, I listen to your podcast on The Blaze. I love that. Absolutely love it. Call me shallow. I love it. Why? Because it's connection. It's connection. And that's what this is really all about. Um, why and how does the Bible stimulate scientific discovery? Easy. I'll tell you as soon as we get back. Don't go away. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. My oldest is on her seventh year of Chinese and, um, and, and just started high school. Now, what do you think by the time she's ready for college, what do you think will serve her better? What is more exceptional, speaking Spanish or speaking Chinese. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
Revealing how the world really works. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that uh, we all like to be close to that which we love. Whether it's people or places or experiences. And that principle helps us understand how it is that the one single thing that really explains why Europe left, leapt ahead in science and technology while the rest of the world languished in the 12th century? Well, let me explain. And, and I, I will say that, uh, that many have tried to find the answer to this because it's such a baffling question. And although, for the most part, academia and universities ignore the question of why Western civilization seems to be so much of a success uh, because they are fearful of the answer, uh, the true answer is nothing to do with skin color or race. Uh, the, the true answer, of course, is, um, is, as I'm going to show you, the Bible. But that's not the answer that everybody arrives at. However, everybody that tries another possible explanation usually falls back in defeat, acknowledging that they somehow or another did not successfully uh, get the right explanation. So I'm thinking, for instance, a great scholar called David Landis wrote a book called The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. And as you can tell from the title, he's trying to explain, you know, why is it that some nations became wealthy and some linger in poverty all the way into the 21st century? And, uh, and you know, he, he tries very hard. But in, at the end of the day, uh, he also, it's, you know, th there's no other explanation. Um, there's a guy called Robinson who, uh, who in uh, collaboration with a semoglue, wrote a book called The Wealth and Poverty, of, uh, wrote a, a, a book called Why Nations Fail, Why Nations Fail. And again, that, that could hardly be more stark and explicit, could it? I mean, I think it's fair to say that non-Western nations have failed for the most part, haven't they? I mean, there are not a lot of exceptions to that rule. And, uh, and it's, it's a very disturbing thing. I mean, why, why has one group of nations succeeded so spectacularly beyond the wildest dreams of everyone else? I mean, it's, it, it does defy the odds. It is against statistical probability. And that's why these people all try, these scholars and authors all try. And Robinson in the book Civilization does his best. Uh, Jared Diamond did a famous one called Guns, Germs, and Steel and uh, try to come up with an explanation that uh, would account for this bizarre performance of the Western nations. And, and again, an ingenious book comes up with lots of interesting things, but in the final analysis, hasn't got it, doesn't work. And then uh, uh, more recently, a guy called Niall Ferg Neil Ferguson, I think he pronounces it, is a, a British scholar who's now living in the United States, and he wrote a book called um, Civilization, the West and the Rest, 
again, it's obvious the same question, right? The West and the rest. How do you explain the difference between the West and the rest? And uh, he explains it in terms of, of six killer apps, is what he calls them to sort of use colloquial terminology. And, uh, and of course, one of them is property rights and so on and so on. You know, but again, all it does, and he recognizes this, he's an honest academic, that it just postpones the question. Okay, fine, but why are these the countries that came up alone with these six killer apps? And so, uh, basically, I think it's fair to say that uh, almost everybody that tries to explain this uh, falls back in defeat and uh, does not. Why? Because in uh, intellectual circles, nobody wants to give religion as a reason. In secular circles, there is a preference for believing that religion has no bearing on modern life, that, in, that modern, rational, up-to-date people uh, are in no way influenced by primitive tribal beliefs of thousands of years ago. Well, it's very disturbing to them because uh, the, the evidence of their eyes and their ears says that to this day, millions and millions of people are living lives profoundly shaped by the Bible and by Judeo-Christian civilization, uh, the people living in Israel, you know, there's uh, close to six million Jews living in Israel. They could really live easier lives in New Jersey. And uh, I'm quite sure in exchange for finally solving the Middle East crisis, if all the Jews agreed to leave, don't you think they could live better lives in Australia, Germany, England, America, Canada? I think so. And, I mean, I, I know Israel fairly well, and I know many people who live there. However, I don't know anybody who'd say, oh, good offer, thank you. Yeah, we're ready to move to Saskatchewan. We'll go to Alberta. We'll go to Toronto. We'll go to Sydney. No. Why are they all living in Israel? It's not because the life is easy there. It's not because the economy is so fantastic. They're there because that is the land that God gave to Abraham. And uh, you can be driven around, you can be driven by a, a cab driver who gives no indication of being a, a religious fanatic in any kind of way at all and say to him, why are you living here? And he'll tell you. They do it all the time. And that is baffling to secular bureaucrats of the United States State Department uh, because they've never really spoken or lived or been friendly with people for whom religion really matters. Uh, so they're baffled by that. They're, they're baffled by, uh, by the way that uh, millions, perhaps 70 million evangelical Christians in America live and vote and believe. They're baffled by that. They want to believe that all these people are somehow primitive and uneducated, but the evidence belies that. And so this is really not a great time to be a secular bureaucrat because it's uncomfortable. Everything you see around you tells you that everything you believe is a lie. Because the truth is that Judeo-Christian beliefs and the Bible have shaped civilization and continue to shape the day-to-day -day lives of millions of good people here in Europe, in the United States, Europe, and in Israel. Not to mention China, by the way, fastest growing Christian population, perhaps over 100 million serious Christians in China. Now there is an interesting development, something really worth watching.
But as I said, uh, we're created by God to want to be close to things we love. And that really helps us understand why it is that science and technology, medicine, uh, all of advances took place in the West and not in the rest. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the only uh, religious system in the world, the only belief system in the world that contains this phrase, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Now, that sentence is so well known that uh, I have been able to go up to a nine-year-old child playing in the playground outside a church in Huntsville, Alabama, and say to him, can you finish off the sentence for me? If I say to you, in the beginning, God created, what's the rest of that sentence? And almost without thinking, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Well done. I said, you're exactly right. And when I tap an urchin on the streets of Tel Aviv in Israel on the shoulder and I say the same thing to him in Hebrew, could you tell me, could you please tell me, uh, how does the rest of the sentence go? And he finishes off. He says, You see, in the West, or at least in the Judeo-Christian belief system, people know that. And it's the only belief system that contains that phrase. And so somehow, fundamental to how we relate to the world must be the awareness that God was the beginning of the world. Now, again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I know obviously that uh, I have many, many listeners for whom the Bible isn't important and uh, for whom religious aspects of it are less interesting. But bear with me, and I know you will, and I appreciate that very much. Bear with me because I'm actually explaining why it is that Europe shot ahead in scientific advance, whereas the rest of the world languished in primitive obscurity. Uh, what happened? Well, again, we're talking about societies, whether it's from Sweden to Italy, from Spain to Hungary. Uh, in all of these places, Czechoslovakia, Germany, all of these places, People knew the phrase, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Well, what's that got to do with anything? Well, let me explain. Let's imagine that uh, you are really, really excited about uh, a painter. Let's say um, Rembrandt, the Dutch painter Rembrandt. Let's say you really are into him. You'd love nothing better than to spend an evening having dinner with Rembrandt. Not possible. I'm sorry. So what's the next best thing? Well, you know the answer. The next best thing is to go to the State Museum in Amsterdam and uh, sit on one of the benches that is located in front of uh, a Rembrandt painting like Night Watch and just sit and stare at it and absorb it and allow it to talk to you. And that's as close as you can come to the painter. Um, you know, people are, uh, are excited about uh, the Beatles. They love the Beatles' music and they would love nothing better than to spend time with Sir Paul McCartney. And, uh, but it's, it's not going to happen. So what do you do? Well, they go to England, they go to Abbey Road, and they visit Strawberry Fields. In, and they, they, they relate in, in whatever way they can to the music, and they listen to the music and again and again. And that's what fans do. And although it is the, it's the love of the, uh, the Beatles that makes them do that, the, um, the, because they can't connect directly with the Beatles, they then connect directly with the creations of the Beatles, the things the Beatles did. And that, and that it is. You know, there are people who are obsessed with certain architects. 
well. They can't get together with the architects who may no longer be alive, but they do go to visit the structures, the buildings that were created and constructed in accordance with the drawings and plans and visions of those particular architects, and they feel close to the architect through doing that. Well, my friends, it's exactly the same here. The reason that Jews and Christians were propelled far more fervently to the study of the real world through science and mathematics and technology than anybody else, and why so many religious Christians were in the forefront of the prominent scientists of the day. The reason was because everybody who is religious wants to have a connection with God. Everybody wants to be close to God, and it's very hard to do that. And one of the best things to do is if you find a trouble, if you find it challenging and difficult to get close to a particular person or entity, in this case God, what you do is you get close to his creations. What is the best way of getting close to God's creations? Not just looking at nature, it's studying nature. And when you study nature, you start observing patterns. And you discover that there's something called gravity, and you discover there's something called electrostatic forces, and then you discover that electrostatic forces and gravitational forces, although they are in no way connected, seem to be symmetrical in the way they are defined. And little by little, you emerge with science. And since you have a, a, a writing, you can convey ideas. The next generation picks up where you left off. And, uh, and little by little, science emerges. You get technology emerging. All of this out of a love of the Creator. All of this out of a love of God and wanting to get close to Him by getting close to His creation. And that's all it is. That is why science took off in Judeo-Christian countries, why it took off prim primarily uh, in the hearts and minds of scientists who were deeply Christian in their beliefs. Very important point. And uh, when we come back, I have to tell you now about um, how uh, it is that finance and capital and the management of money emerged also in the West as opposed to the rest. Bartering continued in Africa into the 20th century. They, they still didn't have reliable currency. And Europe had had it already for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why? Are they smarter than Africans? Not at all. That's not the issue. They had a head start. They had the Bible. Africa did not. I'll tell you exactly how that works coming right back. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Coming up today on Patents Stew. They're trying to figure out if she goes to jail. I'm going to read that. I'll read about that. Where I that do they was over? put him slash her? Well, first of all, Kate's not going to jail. Uh, Bruce is not going to jail. Uh, yeah, no, Bruce, they're not going to put Bruce Kate in jail. Uh, not going to happen. Not know. gonna happen. I don't oh my know. gosh. No way. Pat and Stu. Weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Here we are back together again as we approach uh, the last segment of the 10th podcast. Yes, uh, this is already the 10th. That means we've. Uh, We've been together for two and a half months, and uh, if any of you have not yet had a chance to hear any of the earlier ones, uh, I know you're busy and uh, time is, is limited, but if you do decide to devote any time to, to listening, 
I would recommend trying to catch up on some of the earlier ones because although I prepare each podcast episode to be a standalone and to deliver value to you in exchange for the time you invest, um, at the same time, they are moving along a track. It is a complete course if taken in order. So um, if you haven't heard any of the earlier ones, uh, you can see them all laid out uh, quite easily, either on iTunes or on uh, SoundCloud.com, uh, and you'll be able to identify the ones you've heard or the ones you haven't heard. At any rate, uh, to wrap up, I said that we need to look at and see, after having spoken about how it is that affinity with the Bible helped to encourage scientific discovery, uh, why does affinity with the Bible help to encourage economic development? Well, first of all, I don't think I have to belabor the point that uh, while there obviously are poor Jews, the fact is that Jews are disproportionately represented among the ranks of the affluent and the successful. And the reason is not a circumcision or chicken soup or any other uh, frivolous or foolish reason. Uh, the, the real reason is, is simply the Jews are the people of the book. Which book? The Bible. And the Bible establishes a certain approach towards money. And uh, first and foremost among them, of course, is something called trust. And uh, although nowadays almost everybody I speak to in Europe has visited the United States, when I first immigrated here as, as a young single man, I... Um, I, I knew lots of friends back in Europe who had never visited the United States, and I very much used to enjoy asking them the following question. Listen, uh, there is a phrase in America that appears in such a way that almost everybody gets to see it several times a day. I'm going to tell you the phrase. Your job is to tell me, where do you think it appears? And I said, the phrase is, in God we trust. And uh, almost without exception, People would listen, think for a moment, and then say, well, it's probably written on the walls of churches, right? And, uh, and I, I enjoyed that so much because I then explained, look, you don't need to write in God we trust on churches because the people who are there already know that. Interestingly enough, that phrase is written on American currency because that is where it's ultimately needed. And, and sure enough, look, one of the very big differences between a secular worldview and a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based worldview is your timeline. Um, secularism tends to focus on the present, and it tends to see the, um, the future as very limited. Uh, secularism speaks about a hopeless future. Um, Paul Ehrlich, a professor at Stanford, uh, spent his time in the 60s and 70s becoming famous for predicting that millions of Americans would die of starvation before the end of the 20th century. And, of course, none of that happened, but uh, the predictions, almost without exception on the left, are doom-filled. Um, it used to be nuclear winter. Some, I, it's before my time, but I, I've seen it and I've read about it that the predictions of the left were the world was going to freeze to death. Of course, now it's the opposite. It's going to heat to death. And all of this is complete and utter nonsense because the bottom line is that a secular vision of the future is doomed. The secular vision of the future has us hurtling into oblivion. 
and um, and this is almost an article of religious belief on the left. Uh, you might remember the religious movie Armageddon with Saint Bruce Willis. This was about an, uh, a meteorite that was going to strike our planet and destroy the Earth. And, of course, St. Bruce Willis saved the day. But it doesn't make any difference. Whatever the actual strategy is, whatever the, ma- the technique is, the bottom line is there is no future in a leftist vision of the world. Everything is hopeless looking ahead. In a religious vision of the world, everything is hopeful looking, in the, looking forward. Uh, we are governed by a God of abundance, and, uh, and we look forward to some day of God's choosing, a, a day of a glorious redemption, uh, the details of which we may, we may not know, but it's certainly positive and optimistic. And another aspect of it which is terribly important, and I, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this one, but that is that uh, the left is not big on children and family. Right? The left, is, uh, it, its focus primarily is on uh, the individual. And uh, as a result, it's not an accident that, by and large, in America and in, uh, in Europe, this is also true, uh, larger families are almost exclusively uh, Jewish or Christian. And uh, people sometimes say to me, when they don't know me at all and they see me out with my kids, oh, you know, are you a Catholic? <laughs> I mean, uh, but it's the Latter-day Saints Church, the Catholic Church, evangelicals, religious Jews, um, because we, we identify our confidence in the future by our fertility. And that's absolutely true. Uh, Nations, societies, cultures, families that have no confidence in the future do not reproduce. They have very few children, usually below the 2.1 replacement level. Uh, When you have confidence in the future, you reproduce. I'm afraid it's no accident that uh, Islam has enormous confidence in its future and its fertility is testimony to just that point. Well, anyways, the the point I want to make is that uh, if your sense of the future is doomed, if your sense is your future is limited, uh, you don't build very much. You don't invest very much. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's one of the reasons that ancient Jewish wisdom says that uh, people should not know the day of their death, because if they did, they'd stop doing things. They'd stop building. They'd stop uh, investing. They'd stop creating. Eat, drink, and be merry. It's, it's all you may do because tomorrow you're dead anyway. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll um, take revenge and even out a few little, uh, uh, get even with a few people you don't like. I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing positive to do. But conversely, if you knew you were living forever, uh, wouldn't you build and invest and create in a very positive kind of a way? And that's what a religious outlook does. It gives you a sense of, um, of, of destiny, a sense of eternity, uh, children, grandchildren, other people, and the connections with them. All of that encourage us to, to develop, to build, to create, and to uh, extend ourselves economically. Uh, another, another, part of that, another part of that, of course, is the, uh, the area of connectivity, where religion stimulates interpersonal connectivity, whereas uh, secularism destroys interpersonal relationships and builds relationships between people and the state. And this is one of the prime differences between a a religious democracy of the kind the founders envisaged and uh, a communistic society, where in communism, distrust is the order of the day, right? 
people are, people are very careful about sharing their ideas or their beliefs, and organizations are distrusted by the government. And so the government encourages a hub-and-spoke structure to society, government in the middle and a spoke connecting everybody. You pay us your taxes. We give you your social security. Uh, you um, vote for us. We educate your children, and so on and so forth. But in a vision, in an Abramitic vision, as promoted by the, uh, by the founders of the United States of America, and by the way, I lay all of this stuff out in great depth in something called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. This is a two-hour audio program that you can get on CDs or download immediately. And again, going into greater biblical detail than I can on the podcast. But uh, go to my website, youneedarabbi.com, and uh, go over to the store and look up, uh, look for the, the resource, uh, Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, if you are interested in going more deeply into this area. But uh, bottom line is that... Um, that all the characteristics that uh, favor the building of a viable economy, that favor the creation of a trustworthy currency, uh, that favor the creation of credit and banking and capital, all of these things are rooted in the Bible and become part of the cultural DNA of every society that absorbs it, You know, whether that's Israel or the United States or Sweden or England. And again, many of these countries are now drifting frighteningly towards the left, towards socialism. And, uh, and it is true that there are other countries like China that are moving more towards freedom. Uh, the future is, is unclear yet as to where all of that is going. But in terms of, uh, of, um, in, in terms of answering the question of why it is that the West has shot ahead of the rest, uh, one of the reasons is that economic viability let alone vitality, stems from the Bible. And these countries that were, were founded and rooted culturally in the Bible absorbed, almost subconsciously absorbed, all of the characteristics and all of the DNA that uh, are, are requ required for the creation um, of the kind of economy that the West has, in fact, developed, which is, which is really quite remarkable and quite wonderful. And so that really uh, has a lot to do with why it is. Um, the Hebrew language um, reveals even more, and there's, there's so much more of this than I can do on the podcast, but, uh, but just to give you one example, in Hebrew there is a very clear distinction between earning money and winning money. As a matter of fact, uh, the Hebrew culture is not even crazy about winning money. It's very enthusiastic about making money, about earning money. And the distinction is strong and severe. However, in uh, other cultures, even some of the Western cultures, by the way, uh, I'm thinking of, um, think of Spanish and French, the language doesn't distinguish between winning and earning. And there are many other languages that fail to distinguish this as well, by the way. And so, uh, although I, I'm not able to speak either Spanish or French, I do know the word. If you want to say, I earned money, right, the, the process of earning money in Spanish, you'd say ganar dinero. But if you're talking about winning the lottery and you won lots of money in, by winning the lottery, it'd also be ganar dinero. Same phrase. And you can catch almost exactly the same um, sounding word in French, right? Uh, gagner l'argent. Uh, winning money or earning money. Same thing. 
And so as long as you're not going to make any distinction at all between earning and winning, then you are undermining one of the principal propulsive forces that drives capitalism and drives economy. If sitting by and waiting to win something is exactly the same as striving with all your energy to earn and make something, well, who, who'd bother? Why, why care? And sure enough, uh, that is a critical distinction between the Hebrew biblical culture and uh, the culture of so many other languages. English makes a distinction between winning and earning, and who knows? You know, this might be why banking launched in England. This might have something to do with why the Industrial Revolution launched in England. Possibly. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not absolutely sure. I don't think anybody can be absolutely sure on these things, but, but that it's a factor that language really does impact a culture is very, very, un, uh, very, very certain, quite unquestioned. So... Um, so there it is. Uh, there are um, some of the distinctions. And, uh, you know, I, I started off this, this whole discussion asking about why people are struggling to get to the West and why no one in the West is struggling to get to North Africa or the Middle East. You know, why, um, why so few countries outside the West have illegal immigration problems. And, uh, and now we've come to the answer. The answer is that even with all their faults, even with the deteriorations, even with the extent to which many Western countries have become rusty, uh, even to the extent that, uh, that America is sadly sliding down a, a slope of, of, of decay, and it's reversible, but at the moment it is, it is sad. With all that said, these countries, whether it's Australia or Canada or New Zealand or America or the European countries, are still the destination of choice. Uh, for all these people from countries that are not and never have been part of Western civilization. Uh, my friends, that brings us to the end of Episode 10 of the podcast. Thank you very much indeed for listening. I really appreciate it, and I would love it uh, to hear from you. If you have a chance to shoot me an email at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, uh, you would get a very enthusiastic reader for anything that you wrote. Appreciate it very much. I want to wish you a fantastic week until next week's podcast is published. And until then, a week of health and prosperity. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.